Martin McBride, I'm your guest speaker for this morning. Um, just having a quick coffee before the sermon. Uh, it's a shame I can't be with you there in person. Obviously, I would have loved to. Uh, yesterday, I was actually going to be running a, a training course, which we'll have to do later in the year now. Uh, but for this morning, it's great to be with you in your virtual church service. Uh, at this time of the service, what would normally happen if I were visiting is that one of you would interview me, ask me a bunch of questions to get to know me. Uh, so I've asked my wife to do that. So Tim, tell us about your family. Well, I have two sons, two teenage sons. One's behind that camera over there. The other one's probably still asleep. Uh, I've been married to my wife, Samantha, for 26 years. But we have a cavoodle named Yoshi who's actively trying to replace me in the relationship. Hey, I'm over here. I'm over here. Anyway. So what's your role at Morling College? Well, currently I'm the head of the Bible and Theology Department, but I've been teaching at Morling for over 12 years now, lecturing in New Testament and preaching. So how's Morling going at the moment? Well, in one sense, it's incredibly frustrating because at the beginning of the year, we just opened a brand new building uh, housing both us and the Baptist head office. We had that for a few weeks uh, until we all had to start working off site because of coronavirus. So uh, it's been a difficult time, particularly getting all of our lectures uh, available via live streaming and everything like that. But the fact that it's done that has probably been helpful for people like you living outside of Sydney in that it's forced us to quickly uh, get some technologies happening that will help you be able to access us a little more easily. Uh, we've got a winter school coming up in a few weeks, starting on the 11th of May, uh, where there's a couple of units you can do via live stream on Monday and Wednesday nights. In fact, I've got a video about that now, which I'll just show to you. Hi everyone and welcome to Morning College 2020 style. Here in the Bible and Theology Department, we might all be socially isolating, but we're still connecting. Still teaching. Still equipping God's people for life and ministry. We're just doing it in new ways. Like our expanded winter school, which starts soon. It's a great way to kick off your Bible College adventure. Or to get ahead in your studies. Rather than wasting this opportunity on the couch watching Netflix. On Monday evenings, David Starling and I will be live streaming a unit called Foundational Christian Beliefs. It's an overview of the key doctrines of the Christian faith, helping us to know what we believe and why. On Wednesday evenings, I'll be live streaming Jesus and the Gospels, looking at how the life, death and resurrection of Jesus fits at the centre of the big story of Scripture. If you're wanting to rediscover what worship is all about at a time when we can't meet and sing together, then Christian Worship is a fully online unit that will help you discover both old and new ways to connect with God. For continuing students, I'll be teaching the post-exilic prophets online, focusing on Zechariah. And I'll be teaching the synoptic gospels, focusing on Matthew. For those heading towards pastoral ministry, on Wednesday mornings, I'll be live streaming a unit called the Pastors Growth and Development, equipping you in ministry for the long haul. Winter school begins on the 11th of May and finishes in mid-July, just before the start of semester two. You can study for academic credit. Or just attend our live stream lectures without all the assignments and exams. Enrol online now. Just go to our website. Or search Morling College Winter School. Take the leap with us this winter. Make time to connect with God and his word. So it's time for the Bible reading now. You might want to get your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 2. We'll have the Bible reading. I'll be back in a minute after I finish my coffee. The Bible reading today comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 15. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you know you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. I love coffee. And when I say that, I mean actual coffee, not the stuff that some people put with it. So if you add syrup or pumpkin spice, uh, if you add milk of any form, including things that aren't actually milk, like soy or almond, or if you can only drink it by adding sugar, and you don't really like coffee. You just like hot milk or sugar or flavoured syrup, and you're using coffee as an excuse. Now, sure, you can kid yourself by having it made by an artisan with pants that don't quite cover his ankles, sprinkle it with hipster beard scrapings or whatever, and then sit around drinking it on upturned milk crates. But when it comes down to it, you're not a real coffee lover if you add anything else to it. Real coffee lovers take their coffee straight up. Now, of course, you're free to disagree with me about coffee, or as I see it, you're free to be wrong. But in the passage we're looking at today, from Colossians chapter 2, Paul talks about something that's even more important than coffee. I know this must be serious, right? So let's pay attention. He tells us that true Christians take their Jesus straight up without any additives. No milk, no sugar, and certainly no pumpkin spice. Let's take a look. Firstly, he tells them to keep on making coffee the way they'd been taught. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. The, your way of life, it should be based on Jesus as your Lord, flowing out of what He's done for you. And what's more, don't think you have to add anything to it to make it more palatable. Because that's what the influences of our world, the influences of the wider culture, will try to tell you. And in verse 8, Paul says, See to it, watch out, he says, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. He's saying, Don't let other people, don't let cultural forces deceive you into thinking that Jesus is somehow insufficient that you have to have anything else added if you want to have all of the fullness of a tasty caffeinated beverage, if you want to experience all the fullness of the way of life that God intended it to be. He says, don't mix in elements of other worldviews that come from human beings, uh, or worse, if the NIV translation is correct and seeing these as spiritual forces. So what did Paul mean by hollow and deceptive philosophy, uh, or decaf as I translate it? 
What was this alternative philosophy that the Colossians were tempted to add to their faith in Jesus just to make it that little bit tastier? Well, this has been debated by Bible scholars for centuries. I mean, they've got to have something to do, right? Uh, But that's because the clues in Paul's letter kind of point us in different directions. Some of the clues he gives make it look like the alternative philosophy was Jewish. Uh, That's led some people to see the whole controversy as being about Judaism. But other clues look a bit more like the pagan mystic religions common in Asia Minor at the time. And still others make good sense against the background of certain schools of Greek philosophy. Now the problem is it's hard to reconstruct a single plausible philosophy that existed in the first century that contained all of those elements. And to be honest, I'm not really sure it was one coherent alternative. But more, a bunch of cultural tendencies that were around in Colossian society at the time. Things that Paul is worried will be added to the way of life of Jesus' followers in Colossae. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us through each of these elements one by one to see whether we too might be tempted to add kind of the 21st century equivalents to our coffee to add them to our own way of life in following Jesus. So firstly, let's look at Judaism. Because as I said, one set of clues in this passage suggests that the Colossians were being influenced by Jewish religious practices. Uh, Verse 16, for example, he says, Therefore do not anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Uh, Now, this is a pretty clear reference to the Jewish food laws and holy days. And a lot of the first converts in Colossae, the people who first became followers of Jesus, they would have been Jewish. And so many people in the church would have already been observing these special rituals and days uh, and continue to do so. I mean, it was part of their culture and there's nothing wrong with that. It only becomes a problem if those religious practices are then imposed on others. Why is that a problem? Well, because, says Paul, they've now been superseded by Jesus. He says in the very next verse, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So what does that mean for us? I mean, it's hard to apply this directly, isn't it? Because, well, we're not normally tempted to observe Jewish regulations about food and holy days. Don't know about you, but... I like our bacon and and we gather to worship on a Sunday rather than the Sabbath. All good, right? But if we think about the pattern for a minute, we might see something there for us. After all, what was the reason for those practices in the first place? What made those regulations attractive to the Colossians? I think there's at least a couple of factors involved. I mean, firstly, the, the Jewish laws and rituals, they prescribed a way of life that in the past, was pleasing to God. And it's not as though it suddenly became displeasing to him. The point was simply that they were no longer needed because God had provided a better way. No longer was it about the letter of the law. It's now about the power of the resurrected Christ living in us, helping us from within to live a life that pleases God. But still, for some followers of Jesus, going back to rules and regulations might have seemed appealing. A bit simpler, a bit clearer than this fuzzy idea about living by the Spirit that Paul kept talking about. I mean, adding rules makes things clearer. Adding rules gives us a list that we can check off to reassure ourselves that, hey, we're doing it right. 
Adding rules makes it more palatable to our desire to be self-reliant. I'll have Jesus, but can you just add some religious milk and sugar? But the second reason, I think this is one that's a bit more insidious, uh, the second reason that the food laws and the festivals uh, were, were still kind of continuing to be popular is that they acted as an outward marker of belonging to the people of God. Uh, more than that, they were, they were handed down for, from the people who'd been the people of God for a lot longer. So those who'd arrived more recently might be tempted to follow them, to fit in, and to avoid being judged by the old guard. And in turn, the old guard might have been tempted to use these practices as a way of protecting their status as the ones who run the show around here. Sure, you can join us. Just do things the way we've been doing them. Sound familiar? I'll have Jesus, but I'd better add some religious milk and sugar because it's the way everyone else here seems to drink it. Don't think it'd take you long to spot that dynamic occurring in many social groups, including churches. Service styles, Bible translations, evangelism strategies, leadership structures, Bible teaching methods, dress codes, music styles, discipleship disciplines, just to name a few of those things. Things that worked well in a previous era that can become fossilized as the only way it can be done. Or at the very least, the only way it should be done around here if you want to fit in with us, if you want us to accept you. But Paul reminds us that no matter how helpful a human-created guideline or resource or a way of doing things might have been in the past and might continue to be for you, it can't be imposed on others in different times and in different contexts. The risen Christ and the power of his indwelling spirit are central. And anything else, however helpful it might be, should not be a source of pride or judgment or division, nor should it even replace humble Spirit dependence as a means of living a life that's pleasing to God. Now, by all means, if something helps you follow Jesus, follow Jesus more faithfully, then do it. But don't think that you or anyone else has to add any human religious practice to what you already have in Christ. The second influence from Colossian society came from the local mystical religions. Verse 18, we see a hint of that, where Paul says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Now again, the precise meaning of what's going on in Colossae is debated, but I think, I think the general vibe's pretty clear, right? Because a lot of the local religions in Asia Minor had this mystical element often involving ecstatic states and out-of-body experiences. People were seeking emotional, spiritual experiences in order to get a sense of connection with the divine. So it's not surprising that the Colossian Christians were influenced in this direction too. Followers of Jesus might be tempted to chase this sort of thing, to, to get the full experience of worshipping God. And I think the motivation is significant. They were seeking the experience so that they could boast about it so that they could gain status by telling everyone else. And Paul's response? He says it's a distraction which can disqualify you. That is, it can draw you away from the true worship of God. They might think they're being spiritual, but, but they're not. They're doing it for reasons of status, just like we saw in the previous two verses with Jewish laws and rituals. They've made it all about themselves. 
about their experiences and their public image. And in so doing, they've disconnected themselves from Christ and from his body, who are the people of God. Verse 19, they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Now, I know we're not being misled by mystic religious practices from Asia Minor, I'm guessing. But there are plenty of religions in our world that have similar elements. Some can be quite exotic, such as the whirling dervishes of the Sufi branch of Islam, who kind of spin themselves into ecstatic trances. Or the narco cults of the Caribbean, which add traditional drugs into the mix. Others are more common, like New Age spiritualities and occult practices that seek a feeling of connection with the natural environment or the spirit world. Or perhaps some meditative rituals that come from Eastern traditions. This common human desire for a religious experience can influence the ways in which followers of Jesus practice their faith. We see this in the various Christian groups which prioritise the experiential aspect of faith, perhaps over the cognitive and behavioural. For us, are we influenced by this desire for an, an altered state or an emotional experience of God? Are there experiences we seek out because they emotionally convince us that we're more connected to God? Or worse, that they give us a sense of importance amongst others at church? Here's a few questions we might want to ask ourselves. Do we attend church primarily for the feeling the services give us? and then sometimes get disappointed and feel spiritually disconnected when that feeling doesn't turn up when it's supposed to? Do we make sure we look like we're having an emotional or spiritual experience in public worship with one eye on how other people are perceiving us? Do we place undue pressure on others to have the same kind of emotional or spiritual experience that we have in worship when God may just have wired them differently and then judge them when they don't look like they are? Are there particular events or conferences or other Christian gatherings we go to just because we want to get a particular feeling? Do we chase supernatural experiences such as exorcism or prophecy or tongue speaking because we need them to sustain our relationship with God or because we need them to feel important and useful to Him? And here our, our motivation is what I'm talking about, not about those practices in themselves which are perfectly biblical. Right? Hear me correctly. In other words, have we sometimes made spiritual experiences, even good ones, into an idol? Have we disconnected ourselves from our head, from Jesus, in search of feelings and experiences which constantly need topping up in order to sustain our faith? Yeah, I'll have Jesus, but can, can you just mix in a little pumpkin spice mysticism to go with it? Now, of course, I'm not suggesting in any way that experiences and emotions and the supernatural have no place in our relationship with God. Right? Of course they do. But it's God himself whom we're to seek, not the rush of emotions that may or may not come with that from time to time. And not the experience of supernatural phenomena themselves. It's a bit like the difference between being in love with your partner and being in love with the feeling of being in love. Right? They're subtly different. The third influence in, Coloss in Colossians seems to be connected to a common element in Greek philosophy. Let's read the next few verses. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, 
Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In the first century, the dominant schools of Greek philosophy promoted a lifestyle based on, on reason alone, on rational thought, rather than being swayed by their passions and desires. This goes back a few centuries to a philosopher named Plato. Plato saw our passions and our emotions as belonging to our inferior bodily existence, in contrast with reason, which belonged to the superior spiritual dimension. And so the goal then was to suppress our passions and desires and achieve perfect self-mastery. And each of the philosophical schools offered different ways in doing this. Uh, the description in these verses of self-denial and harsh treatment of the body probably best fit a group called the Neopythagoreans, uh, named after Pythagoras, whom you might remember from maths. Uh, the Neopythagoreans punished their bodies in order to purge their body's desires, uh, possibly using the pointy bits of right-angled triangles, although I may have made that last bit up. The point is that they were humanly devised strategies to achieve this ideal of self-mastery of somehow controlling your body, uh, body's desires and not being enslaved by them. And they were highly popular in the surrounding culture, among those who were seeking honour and virtue. We have our own versions of them, don't we? Self-help gurus like Tony Robbins and Oprah encourage us to impose lifestyle disciplines or recite affirmations as a way of becoming a better, more successful version of ourselves. The health and fitness industry promises life transformation through adopting a paleo diet or taking up triathlons during our midlife crisis or whatever. Everyone's selling a new self-help strategy to gain happiness and success. The danger is that Christians can overlay this self-help approach on how we follow Jesus. You can see how that might have been attractive to Paul's readers in Colossae, don't you? After all, we're called to live a life that doesn't give in to our sinful desires and passions and to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, as Paul says in Romans. So if that's the goal, why not give a bit of Greek philosophy a go? Self-denial, self-mastery, can't hurt, right? The problems, however, should be obvious when you think about it. I mean, firstly, the diagnosis provided by Greek philosophy is a bit off target. Because passions and desires, they aren't all sinful. God gave us good passions, good desires. And he created the, this material embodied existence to which Plato thought they belonged. And God said that it was good. Desires are not all bad. And secondly, the prescribed treatment plan is all about self. Self-denial, self-abasement, self-mastery. It's striving for something good, but doing it by human effort rather than the power of the resurrected Jesus. It's a human devised self-help strategy to solve a human-defined problem. And if we're not careful, we can do this today, taking the self-help strategies of our culture and overlaying them onto the way that we follow Jesus, often very subtly. Uh, Christian books can sometimes contribute to this, if unintentionally, along with the preaching that's often based on them, uh, particularly the way in which they tend to look like their secular counterparts. Seven steps to this, uh, five habits of highly effective that, 
The danger is that they reduce discipleship to a set of human-devised rules and strategies. Or more subtly, they give perfectly good biblical teaching on spiritual transformation, but do it in a packaging that makes it look like just another self-help offering on the marketplace. So that when it doesn't seem to work straight away, we just throw it in the bin along with the latest fad diet or whatever, rather than persist with the slow, unpredictable work of the Holy Spirit within us. Yeah, I'll have Jesus, but can you just add some self-help syrup as well? But not only do self-help techniques not work, if we're not careful, they'll slowly start to redefine the problem in human terms. Our goals become more here and now, more self-focused. Jesus is the one who gives me physical health and financial well-being. Or Jesus is the one who makes me feel better about myself. Jesus is the one who fixes my broken relationships. Back in 2005, a couple of social scientists set out to research what young Americans actually believed about God, what their idea of a divine being was and, and how we should live in light of that. Essentially, they asked what their religious philosophy was. What was their worldview that guided their way of life? And the findings were fascinating. Because regardless of what religion they notionally thought of themselves as, for the majority of American youth, their beliefs and practices were all quite similar. Their religious philosophy was essentially the same, uh, to the point where the researchers coined a new term to describe it. They called it moralistic therapeutic deism. What did they mean by that? Let's break it down. Firstly, they said it was moralistic. They believed that living a good moral life in terms of how we treated others was the most important thing. Note that nothing was said about how we treat God. Secondly, not only was it moralistic, it was therapeutic. That is, the goal of this moral life was happiness and fulfillment. It was to make them feel better about themselves. And again, note that it's all about self and about this life. And thirdly, it was deistic. That is, their conception of God was one who was remote and impersonal, not particularly relational. God's role was simply to be our troubleshooter when life isn't going right. He's there to fix our problems, to make us feel better about ourselves, or to be our divine butler and cosmic therapist, as the researchers put it. Moralistic therapeutic deism is, in essence, what Western culture increasingly believes about God. Uh, for those who haven't rejected the idea of God altogether. It's the hollow and deceptive philosophy of our own age. Have we been taken captive by it? Have we perhaps subconsciously incorporated any of its assumptions into how we go about following Jesus? Do we come to him to have our problems fixed and to feel better about ourselves rather than simply because of who he is? Is Christ an end in himself or is he just a means to a happy, fulfilled life as we or as our world would want to define happiness and fulfillment? Yeah, I'll have Jesus, if it gets me that temporary sugar high the rest of the world seems satisfied with. But Paul says, don't add anything to your Jesus. He doesn't need sweetening or watering down or spicing up. The pure Jesus already has everything we could possibly want. Verse 8 in Colossians, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Why? Well, he gives us the essence of the answer in the very next verse. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. Jesus is all the fullness of God. That's it. Nothing else needed. 
He's in bodily form, meaning he's not distant and unreachable. He stepped into our world to become one of us. We don't need out-of-body mystical experiences to relate to the divine because Jesus had an interbody experience 2,000 years ago. And what's more, we've been brought into that fullness. We don't need any of those man-made religions or experiences or self-help philosophies if we're going to have life to the full, if we're going to live a moral, meaningful, virtuous life. Because through his death and his resurrection, Jesus made it possible for us to experience all the fullness of God, forgiveness of sins and the power to live a life of obedience. We don't need to go adding any other source of help or looking to any other power, obeying any other authority, because Jesus is the head over every power and every authority. The biggest threat to Christianity in the 21st century is not atheism. Just like in the first century Colossae, the biggest threat doesn't come from those who oppose belief. It comes from followers of Jesus being taken captive by the hollow and deceptive philosophies of the world around us. Watering down what we have in Jesus with man-made attitudes of religious rules and experiences and self-help strategies. If you want to add stuff to your coffee, well, go ahead, that's your loss. But don't add stuff to your Jesus. Instead, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Well, we've heard uh, from Colossians, we've heard from the Lord speaking to us uh, from the book of Colossians, we've heard about the perfection of Christ and the greatness of Christ and I'm encouraging you as we go into this week uh, that all of us uh, would have hearts and minds that are, uh, that are looking to him. So easy to get distracted, so easy to wander off. Um, but uh, my encouragement is that um, we have hearts and minds that are focused on him and depending on him. Let me pray together as we finish. Dear Father, we declare that you are our God and that you have sent your son. Uh, there is no imperfection in him at all. He is perfect. There is no inadequacies. He needs nothing added to him. He is totally adequate and all sufficient for us. And Lord, we're rejoicing in you and that you've given us uh, your son uh, as our salvation, as our hope, as our God and as our king. And we, we love and praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.